Hello, and welcome to the relaunched IBMS podcast, now named the IBMS Pod. I'm Rob Dabrowski, editor of the Biomedical Scientist magazine, and along with new jingles and regular sections, I'm joined by two new co-hosts, Jordan Ross and Helen Blackburn from the IBMS communications team. In this episode, we talk to award-winning dermatopathologist Guy Orchard in a conversation that ranges from patenting pathology products to why science can be like painting and how a Palmer ham slicer provided a lightning bolt moment of inspiration. When we spoke to Guy, he was on his laptop in his kitchen at home, so apologies for any background noises on this recording. You will hear some clattering dishes, running water, and even some vegetable slicing. After Guy, we hear from Emma Victory, who brews beer alongside her work as a senior biomedical scientist. Now, on to the podcast. I'll hand you over to Jordan for the latest IBMS headlines. Thanks, Rob. I'm Jordan, Science Communications Officer. And I'm Helen, Communications Assistant. And here are the main headlines from the IBMS. The IBMS Fellow, Dr Guy Orchard, has been named Biomedical Scientist of the Year at the recent Advancing Healthcare Awards. The skin disease expert, who has worked at St Thomas Hospital in London for over 25 years, has developed two new products, both patented for diagnostic use. Cell Soft is a new tissue softening agent, and True Slice, a new tool for the fine slicing of samples. He'll be joining us on the podcast in a moment. Meanwhile, IBMS licentiate Misha Costa, a biomedical scientist from Southwest London, also picked up an AH award in the Rising Star category for her dedication and hard work. Congratulations to Guy and Misha on their brilliant achievements. In other news, you can now register online for the Biomedical Scientist Live a new virtual event taking place from the 16th to the 19th of November. It's completely free for IBMS members and features a packed lineup of seminars, discussions and workshops across a whole range of topics. There's something for everyone. The NHS has started consulting on a proposal to enable biomedical scientists across the UK to administer and supply medicine using the patient group directions procedure. IBMS Council Member for the South East, Jane Needham, has said this is great news and will allow biomedical scientists to directly improve the quality and convenience of their patients' care. Two IBMS Fellows were recognised on this year's Queen's Honours List. Sir Professor Stephen Holgate has been awarded a knighthood for his services to medical research. Anne Hannah has been awarded a British Empire Medal for her services to pathology in the COVID-19 pandemic. IBMS President Alan Wilson recently gave evidence to a group of MPs and Lords on the All-Parliamentary Committee for Coronavirus. The session focused on the government's response to the pandemic and issues with the test and trace system. The first week of November is National Pathology Week, a week-long celebration of activities and events promoting the disciplines and professions in pathology. Finally, the IBMS has made several appearances in the media throughout the pandemic to represent biomedical scientists. You can find these and more information on all of these stories in the show notes or on our website at ibms.org. Hello and welcome to Dr Guy Orchard, who is the head of laboratory at St John's Institute of Dermatology, uh, St Thomas's Hospital London. He's also a lecturer, works in research and development, publishes papers, sits on editorial boards, patents products. And the most recent addition to his CV is being crowned Biomedical Scientist of the Year at the Advancing Healthcare Awards in October. So, Guy, welcome and congratulations. Thank you very much and a uh, pleasure to be here. Good stuff. So, um, 
I'm just going to read something out to you very quickly, Guy, which is um, as follows. Dr. Orchard is an exceptional scientist. He strives to apply his subject matter expertise to advanced practice in an innovative and impactful way. He's devised patents for two new pathology products and a third patent is pending. He makes a difference to everyday care. Now that is the uh, synopsis from the entry uh, for your award win the other day, Guy. And I was just wondering which element of that summary you think is most important and central to your work, whether it's advancing practice, whether it's innovations or patenting products or making a difference to care. What do you see as kind of central to the work that you do? That's a very good question. And the answer, I guess, is complicated, of course. <laughs> but I would say that we're all here to... Uh, to, to, to give better care, and that's that's the purpose that we, we all strive to achieve. Um, and many of us do it in many different ways. I guess, from my perspective, I've been fortunate enough because of the interests I've had to be able to look at that and support it by several different routes, whether it be developing something or even focusing on staff training or, or even writing scientific publications that make contributions in the field. Um, so on and so forth, but I've always been keen on trying to explore all avenues uh, that I have available to me. Do you find that ever challenging? You know, do you ever think oh, I'm spreading myself too thin? If I've got multiple things going on at the same time, I'm not necessarily very good at juggling them all. I need to kind of focus on one, push everything else to one side. How, how do you manage to kind of have so many different things going on at the same time? Right, well, you need, you need to... Yes, you, you, certain certain character types can can juggle. Um, I was used to juggling, as you put it, quite early on in my career. Um, I was always fairly committed to developing ideas, and I would pursue them, uh, even if that meant I would do an awful lot of work, which I did do. In fact, out of hours or at home, working and planning on something. The third component, which is crucial to this, of course, is an understanding and uh, um, enthusiastic workforce. And I try to instill the enthusiasm that I have for what I do in them. And of course, if, if they exceed that and, and enjoy that, then you're not really fighting against a brick wall. You are supported in, in what you try to do. I've been very lucky like that. Yeah. And, and you mentioned this was a, from the start of your career. I mean, how, how did you first get into biomedical science? What was the was there a moment where you remember thinking this is the right career path for me? Was it a natural progression from something else? Well, I did science uh, A-levels. I wasn't brilliant, actually. I was quite shy, um, slightly timid young man, not really very confident at all. I mean, people would find that amusing today if I told them that, but it was the truth, and I wasn't sure. And so I knew I was good at biology, but that's about all that I knew. Um, so I applied for this job at St. John's, which was way back in the mid-80s, uh, reading an article in the Times newspaper. And uh, my mother handed it over to me and said, look, have a go at this. This might be, might be what you like. And uh, I'm still in that same laboratory 35 years later. So uh, um, the truth is I did enjoy it. And I very quickly um, came out of my shell, if you will. Um, I think part-time study and working suited me. It doesn't suit a lot of people, but it suited me. And um, I was always hard working. I just 
uh, wasn't able to shine, I suppose. And suddenly I started to shine. And I guess once you start to shine, you like shining and you like pursuing things that make you feel more, I don't know, confident. And, and I think that is the natural progression. It is a natural progression. It started quite early on in my career. Um, I won um, I won the best student of the year award at Paddington University, uh, Paddington College, as it was then, when I was about twenty. And suddenly, I believed, hang on a minute, I, I can actually, I'm quite good at this. And all of a sudden, it, it started off from there. So you never look back, and you, you just keep looking forward, and you look for the next thing, and you look to try to develop different skills sets. You uh, you just keep painting, I guess, scientifically. I, I I don't know how else to phrase it. I just keep painting, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's it an artistic creative process then? Yes, yes, yeah. it is. You're still painting your characteristics, you're still painting your profile, you're still changing and you're adapting uh, as you go through your career. I think that's very important. Uh, I happen to be in the most artistic discipline of all the disciplines. Histology is an artistic science. There's no two ways about it. Those that are shining histology generally have a flair for artistic things as well it's it's an artistic science and it's about pictures it's about pictures and patterns and pattern recognition that's what it is so you've got to be a little bit artistic i think to be a good histologist and i think there's a bit of that in me i I don't know so you specialize in dermatopathology Tell us a little bit more about what that means and maybe some of the most common diseases that you you come across in the lab. So dermatopathology is the study of skin disease, really, the histopathological study of skin disease. And that's the laboratory that I've been in. From the lion's share of the work that I do, it's on skin cancers. So I deal with nasty tumours every day, such as malignant melanomas and squamous cell carcinomas, to name but two. Um, but I also do uh, quite a lot of other um, stuff with skin disease. So um, we also do quite a lot of autoimmune uh, disorders that affect the skin, quite a lot of the blistering diseases of the skin, such as bullous pemphigoid, pemphigus, and a whole host of others, uh, often manifest um, through an autoimmune process that comes out and is visually seen on, on the skin. So there's quite a lot of investigations there. And the third aspect is a part of my career that I hold dear because I, I was there when the first technique was performed and it was the, the most micrographic surgery where they removed tumours from the face and minimally excised them. These are disfiguring tumours uh, and cosmetically they can be quite unpleasant. So uh, I worked uh, on that for 30 odd years um, developing the techniques and way we practice it. Um, now at Guy's Cancer Centre, uh, Guy's Hospital, because I'm split on, on two sites now, Guy's and St. Thomas's. Um, and that's an, a, a growing, expanding area of what I currently do. Mm. And what's one of the most unusual skin diseases you've come across? Ah, uh, yes, you asked me. Unusual case, I guess. Yeah, I, I can cite many, many. Um, one thing you learn about dermatopathology, they can give it a very, very long name. They're usually with some Latin connotations. They do. It's, it's an unusual discipline in that regard. I, 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 the names they give diseases are immensely long in certain cases, or they're named after the individuals who first discovered them. So mm-hmm. I could just... Can you I could the longest name you can remember, Guy? 
Well, I, one that fascinates me as a disease process is something called xeroderma pigmentosum, which is an extremely rare genetic de disease. And we have a lab actually dedicated to the study of exactly that entity. Very rare uh, genetic disorder. But these unfortunate souls are unable to repair the damage that sunlight does to their skin. They can't splice out the damaged DNA that we all get every day when we walk out in the sun. Our body mechanisms recognize its damaged DNA and splice this splice that damaged DNA out and get rid of it. If it persists, it gives rise to cancers and tumours. Now, these poor unfortunate souls, and it can run in families, uh, are stricken with a defect in these splicing enzymes. And because they can't splice the damaged DNA, it sits there and it gives them tumours. And they can be very young in age, you know, below the age of 10, and have multiple uh, cancers of the skin. And so, uh, for me, the understanding of that disease is actually fascinating. Because uh, there are several different subtypes, um, but it's uh, an amazing uh, area of investigation. I'm very pleased and proud that St. John's actually has a national centre for xeroderma pigmentosa, and indeed for um, epidermolysis bullosa, another blistering disease. We're a national centre for that too. Mm. Uh, and you've developed these two new products as well. And one of them you had the idea for in a local delicatessen when you saw a part of ham being sliced, yeah. I believe. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's true, actually, absolutely true. I, uh, I was with my wife and she'd gone off to get some other stuff and told me to go to the delicatessen to get some cheese and a bit of parma ham. So I asked for the parma ham, the chap got the slab out of the counter and he put it on the, the bacon slicer and off he went and, I, and he was doing it and I was looking at it and I was thinking, Jesus, they're very, very small slices very thin and I was uh, looking at them and he offered them to me and I was looking at the side and saying oh how, how thin can you cut these and um he said I don't know he said but they're quite thin aren't they I said yes very thin so that started the idea that night I think my wife thought I was barking mad but I stood up in bed or sat up in bed rather <laughs> and started sketching things which is what I do and started drawing things and then I had my iPad next to me was looking up guillotines because I thought it's guillotines and slicing actions and something that didn't go lateral but has perpendicular slicing and the idea spawned from that and I was drawing it on the train on the way and by the time I got to work I'd drawn it and my original sketches do look remarkably similar to the end product that we currently know as True Slice and True Slice Digital so which are commercially available now but it, that's the story of how that happened and I've been very fortunate to work with a company, self Limited, over the years and had a good, good contacts with them. They've always entertained my ideas, bless them, and they've always generally helped me. And, I, and I've um, tried to talk to them about how we could progress things, but I needed the help of an engineer in this case. Here's my drawing. I want it to look a bit like this. Can you, can you do that? I want it to be like a Lego, Meccano outfit. I want it to be completely take it to bits, throw it in the sink, put it back together again, off you go, and be absolutely accurate. And um, that was the story of that device. Are there people who've got similar ideas, Guy, a creative idea where they think, if we had something like this in my lab, it would make our life better and make our work easier or more efficient? Um, how would they go about having that idea? You know, what, what should they do next? A standard biomedical scientist in a lab who has a great idea. Okay, I think... Uh, th th there's, no temp there's no template for me to give the answer to this. Um, I think it depends on your personal communication skills and how good you are about um, approaching 
that company. You need to have contacts and you need to know certain individuals and certain companies and they need to be open-minded. I made a choice uh, very early on with the first product that I didn't want to go to a large corporate um, company because I know the processes to go through can be quite drawn out. I chose a company that I wanted to work with and have done two or three times since because they were sort of quite a big company. They were a British company, so they sort of get where I'm coming from. And they're not a national company in that sense. And, and so for me, it was a natural progression to work with them. But you do need to have contacts. You do need to be very careful about your ideas as well. I'll remind everybody about that. You have to go through a, a, a process of acknowledgement um, that there's a confidentiality clause here. You need to talk to your legal teams in your established trust or wherever you may be working so they can help you with that process to make sure it's all above board. And then once you started that, it becomes a natural partnership that progresses. You, you mentioned at the start that when you, when you were doing your science A-levels, you didn't think you're a particularly great student, which I'm sure holds a lot of hope for many people out there. But other people who see you now as, you know, you've just won Biomedical Scientist of the Year, other people who want to do something like that, what, what advice would you give them? What top tips would you give any listeners who are just starting out in their careers? That's a good question. And again, there's no template. What, what I would say is just stick to your guns. If you are hardworking, if you are dedicated, if you have some latent skills that are not yet mature enough to develop, don't ever let it go. Don't ever let people tell you you're not good enough, I'm afraid. That can happen, seen it happen. Never accept that you're not good enough to do something that you believe in. You must be progressive in your mindset because it is a tough road and you have to take the knocks with the successes. There are many knocks. But I always played on, on progression. So even if I made, I don't know, a foot game where I'd be knocked back 10, I'd still regard that as progress and carry on going. And you'll be surprised. The successes that you can get if you are committed and you believe in, in what you're doing. But you have to work hard. And it, it's, it's my job is my hobby. Like, that's what I'm trying to get across here. I love doing what I do. I love all of what I do. There's not an aspect of what I do that I don't dislike. Not in my working environment. That includes writing papers, doing talks, ed- educating others, training staff. I love all of it. But... I love being in a team ethos too. And it, it may sound like I'm an individual, but I'm, I'm very much a team player with, the, with my staff and I want to see them be as good as they can be. What's your favourite aspect of all the different things you do in biomedical science, from the teaching side to the diagnostic side to the commercial side? Okay, very good question. And, uh, okay, so it, it, I guess it's, it's changed a little bit over my time course because I've certain things I've realised are even more important to me than I originally thought they were. But for me, the biggest thrill, it's a, it's, um, it's a bit like going on a hunt, really. Uh, you know, actually writing a scientific paper from an, a conception of an idea to working out how you're going to do it, to, to, to crossing all the bridges that you cross to problem solve, to finish it, to then go at, late at night, scribbling away, writing it all up, rethinking it again, rewriting it, and then finishing it, and then taking all the pictures you're going to take to, to support your, 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 your paper, and then to get it all accepted and in print, 
biggest thrill, biggest thrill by far, because you made it. You made a contribution that's in the literature and it's there for life. Nobody can take that away from you. you there's, there's your stamp collection. You just have a look at my CV. There, the stamps, they're all there, and that is really what it's. What is the biggest thrill? Because I know when I finished here, there, there's there's my footprints. They're, they're there and they're in the scientific literature. So, my advice to all of you: collect stamps. And just one final question from me before I hand you over to Jordan for the social media questions. Uh, you've got two patented to pathology products. There's one patent pending. Can you tell us anything about that guy? Yeah, well, actually, I can tell you that it's, it's been patented during this whole process. So I had to keep it under wraps, but it, it has been patented. Uh, we are trying it, and that's a brand new hematoxylin. So I, the, the, hematoxylin is the key dye that we all use in histology. Every single section we produce is stained with hematoxylin. And I went on a bit of a hunt again to try and discover a new hematoxylin using a different warden. And that, the 10 or 11 that I pinpointed as targets, only one uh, actually came to fruition and it's proving reasonably successful so far and we are still trialing it. But we, we do intend to, to produce it. Um, again, it's with CellPath, a partnership that has always been there. Um, and we are close to having that product soon available. I just want to do a few more trials and frozen sections to see how well it does there. That's the next thing. Uh, I'm going to hand you over to Jordan for the social media questions now, Guy. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to our new segment, where each month we'll be asking our guest the questions submitted by you on social media. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, using the handle at IBM Science. Our first question this month comes from Sheree Beckett, who works in Harlow specialising in microbiology. And she asks, what advice do you have for aspiring leaders in biomedical science who want to progress in the profession? Yeah, again, that's a good question. And uh, aspiring leaders, okay. Aspiring leaders can take, in my opinion, many different shapes and forms. Uh, You know, aspiring leaders in terms of being good at managing people, inspiring leaders being good at inspiring others, inspiring leaders being good at scientific innovation. Uh, we actually need all of these. We need, we need inspiring leaders in all these areas. And it remains a, a big um, opinion of mine that we should be embracing those individuals when we find who they are. Because I don't want to say that it, it comes on early in life because I'm a prime example. I'm more like a steam train. I think I was slow to get going and I've, I've just gained more and more speed as I've, I've gone on, but I've never looked back. Those are the qualities that I would say are key to a longer career of progressive development and contribution is to not try to do everything quickly, but let your skills come through, prove and evidence them try to look at ways of developing additional skills to your set that will give you more diversity and more wider appeal. If I knew what was going to happen in healthcare in the next five years, uh, I'd consider that amazing. But we're having trouble working out what's going to happen next year. So who knows what the skills that we really are going to be at the top of the tree. But what's important is to keep going and keep developing a wide skill mix. So that would be my advice. Okay. Um, And Charlotte, who's a biomedical scientist in Manchester, uh, she asks a question along the same lines, but slightly more specific. She says, well, firstly, she'd like to wish you congratulations on achieving your Biomedical Scientist of the Year award. 
And then she asks, what skills, qualifications or personal abilities do you think are essential to becoming a consultant grade biomedical scientist? Well, this is a, a question that's related really to um, a natural, natural abilities. You, you certainly have got to be academically quite gifted. You have to also look very carefully at the qualifications that you were required to achieve. So my answer to that question is read with great focus on all the IBMS RC PATH uh, publications relating to qualifications and pathways for those seeking to achieve the highest grade. And really uh, that at the moment is largely around the RC PATH RBMS examinations for in histopathology, at least, histodissection. Uh, you can get to a quite a good recognised level of proficiency and um, high banding with that. And also, of course, the reporting, reporting uh, exams, which are written, in fact, by the RCPATH and supported by the IBMS. So those, those I would direct you to because um, they, they are the obviously recognised pathways that, is, that are currently available. We hope that there will be more because that's ongoing and we're still developing things. So there probably will be in the future. But um, we need to just focus on what we have in our hands at the moment, and those are the exam pathways. And the next couple of questions come from members who prefer to remain anonymous. So first uh, question. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to insult you, guys. Um, Very horrible questions. <laughs> so, so this member asks, what was it about your nomination for the Biomedical Scientist of the Year Award which you think stood out most to the judges? Okay, well, I'm not a judge, so uh, the, the, the reality of that was I don't really know. But I would say it's, it's, it's steeped in, in innovation, and that's what the project and submission was about. So I, I, I was keen to put that point across, that it's, I mentioned to Rob earlier this painting concept that you paint mm. things these are your ideas and you and you paint them so unlike anybody who, who does that you are probably your worst own critic because you will find ways of improving what you painted all the time and do it slightly better each time but for me in this particular application it's a little bit unusual because i've won awards uh, overseas uh, america and, and, and the process there is slightly different but but this one required a quite an analytical approach to your personal attributes and what makes you motivated what what are the things that you, you want to say um about what you do and so for me it was all about all the things i could say about developing ideas and innovating i think that for me was the the key thing in my application right the innovation aspect yeah um, the next question relates to the current pandemic we, we find ourselves in, and they ask, what impact has COVID-19 had on your work in the lab, and what do you think you've learned most from the pandemic? Ooh. Well, has it made an impact? Most definitely. Uh, I shouldn't think there's a single person out there who works in the lab who's going to say, no, no, I just breezed through it. You don't. It, it's, it's, it, we're still going through it. It's, it's an awful mess. Uh, rotor changes, shift working, which I had to introduce my staff, all of which uh, they adopted quickly and with good grace. And um, ultimately, what was a key directive was to try to protect my staff, to try to reduce the possibility of infection within the department and, and all of that. 
all of that is a constantly changing dynamic, uh, which is difficult to manage, even for the most competent and capable managers. It's a stress, it's a strain, and you have to do all the things you normally do, plus work out how to keep your staff as safe as you can keep them. Not easy, um, and does require good team ethic. I've been fortunate with my lot, I've generally had a good team ethic with most things that I find are going to be contentious and we're going to have to talk about this. And so from that point of view, yeah, difficult. But we've managed so far very well. And uh, I think it's because we talk about these issues closely and we decide how we're going to do it as a group. So those are the things that matter. In terms of all the other things I was doing, well, they were already rolling. So I, the only thing that really happened because of the pandemic was perhaps the third patent was held up, if you will, because... I couldn't do some of the experimentation because I was rushing around doing all the other things I've got to do at work at the moment. Um, but again, it was about talking to the team and working out how we could slot things in. A little bit more demanding, a little bit more stressful, but having said that, we we still got there in the end. And to, to everybody, I'd say, well done, all the health workers, well done, all the lab staff, fantastic job, really. I haven't heard anybody say any place has collapsed because of this. So really doing a great job and keep it up. Thank you so much for your time. It's really appreciated, especially on your day off. And um, yeah. congratulations again on the new patent and the award win. Thank you ever so much. It's, it's a great honor. I'm delighted. And I, uh, well, uh, I'm still in a slight shock over it already, uh, but, but very, very pleased to, to have been honored in this way. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks for joining Thanks. us. Welcome to Lab Life, where we talk to a different IBMS member each month about what they get up to in and out of the lab. This month, we've got Emma Victory, who is a barista and certified beer judge, as well as a senior biomedical scientist. You can follow her on Twitter at Femtobrista, and you can find her homebrew club at Brew Junction. Here's what she gets up to in the lab. Okay, so we are a reference lab that's based at a higher education postgrad school in London. So we do teaching and diagnostics. So in the diagnostic lab, we're actually two different labs. So we're the PHE malaria reference lab. So that's all malaria, whether that's microscopy, antigen tests, PCR. And then the other half of the lab is all parasites which aren't malaria. So that could be blood parasites, gut parasites, worms, bits of eye, <laughs> all <laughs> kinds of things, basically anything that's not malaria. So we get about 2,000 samples a year in a normal year, wow. 2,000 samples a year for malaria and about the same for the non-malaria. So if you look at the numbers that an NHS lab gets, they're much, much higher than that. So we're spending more time on each sample um, for fewer samples and we, we do longer investigations. Mm. Um, so you mentioned you work with all sorts of parasites and is there one that you like to work with the most or that you find most fascinating? Um, I think when people think about parasites, one of the things that springs to mind is worms. So we get um, quite a lot of worm requests, but I would say that most of them are negative. And I think this is because people secretly want to have a parasite right. um, people send things in that they say is this a worm and it will be a piece of string or it will be um something undigested that they've found um in after they've been to the toilet and they think oh what's this i wonder if i've got a worm mm. um so worms are really interesting people are, people are fascinated by them at the same time they're disgusted so mm. when we have um induction dates for new members of staff 
we get um, laboratory tours where I do a tour and I show the new members of staff around and I always get the worms out and we get out a five metre tapeworm, we get out a bucket of ascaris, which is roundworm. So just imagine a bucket full of like fixed formaldehyde dead worms. Look at this. And everyone, uh, they don't want to look, but they do want to look at the same mm-hmm. time. It's kind of repulsive, but also attractive. Um, <laughs> so I would say my favourite parasite might be uh, a schistosome, because schistosomes are considered quite romantic, because the female lives inside a little groove on the male's body. So you see okay. pictures of them around Valentine's Day, because <laughs> one is smelled into the other. It's like they're spooning. So that's quite cute. Oh, nice. <laughs> In her spare time, Emma is heavily involved in brewing and beer judging. My husband and I started homebrewing together in 2012 after we had a couple of trips to the US and tried lots of different beers there that you can't get here. And we stayed with some friends of mine who were homebrewers. And I think we had a real mind-blowing moment in Brooklyn where we tried some of our friends' homebrew. Mm. And it was so good that we didn't believe it was homebrew. <laughs> Wow, I can't believe it's sober. This is amazing. Did you make this? Yeah. And that was a real like, epiphany, epiphany moment for us. And when we came home, we basically just got really into it. So we went to a homebrew shop, we bought the kit, we had a go. Uh, we just kind of went in at the deep end, really. So because I'm a scientist, my husband was trained as an engineer, we got really kind of down into the nitty-gritty, the technical aspects of brewing. Uh, we met lots of homebrewers in the London homebrew community and lots of professional brewers did lots of sharing out homebrew, uh, started going to a homebrew club. A few years later, ended up being asked to start a homebrew club for a bottle shop in Clapham Junction. That shop unfortunately closed, so we took our club to uh, Battersea, Battersea Brewery Taproom in Battersea, and we've been hosted by them ever since. Um, we also got into beer judging, so beer judging and competitions. So... I've been judging in commercial and homebrew competitions since about 2015. It's something that I really enjoy. I take it really seriously. Um, It requires a lot of effort. It's actually quite tiring judging beer. You might think it's fun, but uh, (laughs) it's hard work, I'll tell you. Okay. Um, (laughs) Uh, So do you have um, specific um, categories that you use to judge a beer? How do you go about actually judging a beer? Okay, so um, there's an organisation called the uh, Beer Judge Certification Programme. It's based in America, but it's recognised worldwide. So uh, there are beer judging qualifications that you can get. So my husband and I are both certified beer judges. We uh, gained our qualification last year. It was quite uh, quite hard work, I would say. There's a, an online entry exam and then there's a one and a half hour practical exam. Uh, you judge according wow. to styles. So uh, there are over 100 different beer styles. They range from things like pale ales, Belgian styles, lagers. Um, there's, there's hundreds. There's, there's so many different styles. Mm. So for the exam, you have to know over 90 different styles. You have to actually memorize them. And in the exam, you're given beers and they say, this is an American payload and you have to know in your head exactly what the criteria are, what it should look like, what it should smell like, what it should taste like, what it should feel like in your mouth, what it should and shouldn't have um, in terms of characteristics, even how carbonated it is, um, everything. You have to know all of that before you do the exam. So yeah, so you judge against a star guide. When you're judging competitions, you're actually allowed to look at the star guidelines, but in the exam, you have to <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know there were that many different styles of beer. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 
These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.